The profession that I joined was quite different to what it is now. You know, IP is for a lot of companies, not all companies, but for a lot of companies, and certainly for technology companies, is core business for them. It's a, it's really a core asset. That's my guest on today's show, Rob Wolf. He's a patent attorney with over 35 years experience and a partner at Griffith Hack, one of the largest and most impressive IP firms in Australia. Rob joins me to discuss his particular interest in clean technology, how he got his start as a patent attorney, his 34 plus years at Griffith Hack, and the advice he would give his younger self if he was entering the industry today. I'm your host, Justin Simpson. I'm an Australian patent attorney and founder of Bill Trader. Welcome to the very first episode of Talking IP, a podcast for IP professionals featuring conversations that take you inside the professional lives and careers of global IP leaders and entrepreneurs. I hope you enjoy the show. Now, Rob, I know one of the areas that you're interested in is clean technology. It's not really my area. I don't really understand it. What is clean technology and why do you love it so much? Yeah, so as a chemical engineer, Justin, clean technology has an inherent appeal to me because chemical engineering uh, plays a key part uh, in the evolution of those technologies and the realisation of them. Basically, it's any technology which helps with emissions reduction or efficient energy use, you know, better treatment of waste or minimization of waste, essentially just reducing the load on the environment. And as we know, that load takes various forms, carbon dioxide, uh, various noxious gases, uh, particularly, say, in the refrigeration and air conditioning area. Also, in a whole raft of uh, you know, alternative fuels and alternative ways of generating electricity and generating power. It's a huge area and chemical engineering sits in the middle of that. So that's my sort of fascination and interest. And, you know, we're, we're definitely seeing a lot of growth in that area in terms of the uh, the work that we do. So when the, the government talks about getting to zero emissions by 2050 or whatever, you understand what that is and uh, and and can see how the progress can get there. Is, is it a realistic thing to aim for zero emissions? And what, is, what does that mean? I tend to take a, as, a, as an engineer by background, I, I my approach tends to be pragmatic. And so I think that net zero is a noble cause and it will <laughs> it will track us in the right direction. And, and I think technology is going to play a key part in that, that track or that path. Whether we actually get there is another story. At least if we have an aspirational target, the business community can galvanise around, then I think we're at least all heading in the right direction. So... You know, net zero emissions is a huge uh, ask, I think, particularly when we still generate so much of our uh, electricity from fossil fuel sources and also still so much of our road fleet, be that commercial or societal use of automobiles is still very much, uh, you know, based around fossil fuels. Uh, you know, there, there are some, there are all sorts of initiatives underway, obviously, you know, getting uh, electric cars and electric trucks on the road, electrified trains, fully electrified trains, all of these things will help. Even in the agricultural sector, just reducing the emissions there, you know, there's some really interesting uh, work that's going on in that space. We've done a little bit of work in that area with, you know, reducing methane emissions from cattle and, and so on. So, you know, I think that's the, that's the most important thing about having the target is that it galvanises all the interested parties and points them all in the right direction. And I guess hopefully there's an investment in the right sorts of technology that will, will help accelerate that. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, I think there'll be both investment and adoption. 
There are some small electric car producers, but we don't have a huge uh, electric car production industry in Australia. So, you know, we'll be importing a lot of that technology and probably importing the fast chargers as well. Uh, I'm aware that there are some small companies that are sort of playing in, in some of those areas. So there'll be a lot of adoption, but also there's a lot of opportunity for Australian researchers and Australian businesses to develop technologies that complement or fall into those areas. I think having having that sort of clear vision gives people the confidence to do the research, invest the money and take the risks. And then uh, then someone will uh, help fund or, or bring it forward. So exciting uh, technologies coming up in that area in the next uh, few years. Stepping way back to when you began in the profession 34 years ago, uh, was clean technology a, a thing? What was what was the state of it then? Or were you were you just working on uh, efficient uh, fossil fuel production? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the profession that I joined was quite different to what it is now. You know, IP is for a lot of companies, not all companies, but for a lot of companies, and certainly for technology companies, is core business for them. It's a it's really a core asset. You know, when when I joined uh, the profession, IP was part of the R&D function, so a bit of a back room function. It had no board visibility, really, in any companies. And it was only some of the smaller companies where who recognised that IP was important for them. Uh, a lot of the early work that I did was in the sort of mining and resources space and wastewater treatment. So there was a little bit of uh, there was a little bit of interest in waste reduction, waste minimisation. You know, not polluting the environment. Did a bit of IP work in that space, but nowhere near the uh, focus or interest. Now, I will say one thing, and that is that we had a, a long-term client, University of New South Wales, who were very, very active in the solar space in the 70s, 80s and 90s. Unfortunately, a lot of that technology went overseas. So we could have been uh, a world leader in solar technologies, but unfortunately, there was a bit of a bleed of that technology to, particularly to China. And in fact, some of the key researchers at UNSW uh, went back to China and founded their own solar companies and have been selling us solar panels ever since. (laughs) (laughs) Paying for the creations that we had in the first place. Exactly, exactly. So you mentioned back at the the start of your profession, uh, obviously uh, part of this uh, podcast is learning about leaders in the profession such as yourself, how they got their start and uh, and how did they go in their career. So uh, I mean, I only learned what a patent attorney was halfway through university. I don't know how you came across patent attorneys as a profession and how did you get your start? Yeah, good question, Justin. So it, back in my day at university, nobody knew what a patent attorney was. I mean, as an engineer, we'd never even heard of the term. Uh, if you'd said it to us, we would have just thought, you know, some sort of glorified lawyer. Um, <laughs> so, and, you know, so I worked uh, in industry for uh, the best part of three years, both uh, in Australia, in, in various roles in Australia, but also overseas. And at, while I was doing my master's and um, I was both working and studying uh, while I was doing my master's in Sweden. And one of my good mates from university in engineering uh, contacted me and said, you know, I've come across this, across this great job. It's really interesting. Both he and I were a little bit jaundiced about the state of engineering in Australia at that time. You know, we were, particularly in my area, we were just helping companies hold together these ageing chemical plants and, you know, I mean, just shocking work environments. I just, I just didn't see any real future there. So um, I, I kind of had decided that I wasn't going to continue on working as an engineer, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And uh, he wrote to me while I was in Sweden and said, you know, you should check this, check this out. So 
I did a bit more investigation. And, and while I was actually overseas, I wrote to a couple of firms. And uh, when I came back to Australia, I had two interviews lined up. One of those interviews was with Griffith Hack. They offered me the job and I've been there ever since. Actually, I did both interviews and I got offers for both of the both of the uh, firms, but I chose Griffith Hack. I haven't regretted that decision, incidentally, by the way. So That's, That sounds uh, very much how I got my start. There were no jobs being advertised, but I, I sent 40 letters off. I got a one response uh, and one interview and I got that one job. I mean, if, if I hadn't, who knows? Who knows what I've been doing? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and so you've you've been at Griffith Hack, one of, one of the biggest, uh, most impressive uh, firms uh, in Australia now for 34 years. I mean, uh, most people change jobs, change firms faster than they change underwear, but you've stuck at that same place for 34 years, probably in different roles. But what, what is it about Griffith Hack that's uh, kept you happy and interested in working there for, for such a long period? Again, another good question, Justin. So culture is by far and away the most important thing. And I think it's always had a, a great culture. And it's also had this uh, pedigree of working closely with domestic clients, with Australian-based clients, and very much a part of our ethos. And so, you know, in some respects, that's harder work. It's not as profitable as what you might call an agency practice, but it's very rewarding work because you go on the journey with your clients. And, you know, sometimes they're startup companies and you you go on the journey, which sees them, you know, grow to success. Sometimes it's a painful journey. You know, sometimes it it ends up in in tears or uh, the investment, you know, being shut down. But generally speaking, um, it's uh, it's very satisfying working with both small and large enterprises, helping them take their IP globally. And, and we've certainly done that for many, many different companies across many different technology areas. And um, that, they're, they're the two things I would say is that, and we've worked hard to continue to maintain that, uh, a relaxed, uh, trustworthy, easygoing working environment, not a slave trade. We're not that kind of firm. Uh, we, you know, a lot of flexibility and built on trust. And, you know, people's results speak for themselves. So you can tell when somebody's not putting in quite quickly. So there's always been that. And it's also been a fun environment, but yet highly professional at the same time. So we still take the work seriously and we take the clients seriously whilst having an environment which is relaxed uh, in which to work. Yeah, and we've typically shied away from micromanaging you know, the, the people that we hire, uh, they tend to have a bit of industry experience. So they're, they're already somewhat mature. You know, I've always treated everybody that's worked for me as a, you know, a fully fledged adult and able to take on responsibility and, you know, assist them when they need to, but, but don't sort of get in there and check everything that dotting every I and crossing every T. It's just, that's a sort of debilitating experience. You know, I'm, I'm allergic to micromanagers and uh, I try not to do it myself. Yeah, very good, very good. <laughs> I do remember back in when I was at Anovia, we, uh, every year we produced a, a list of the biggest PCT filers in the world who created the, the list. And uh, I was surprised the first time we did it that uh, Griffith Hack was either at the top of the list or very near the top of the list for Australia because I would have assumed that Spruce and Ferguson's would have been would have been higher, but they were, I know, seven or eight, nine down the list, even though they were like the biggest firms. I, I guess that's the, the domestic client base you were talking about. Yes, that's right. And, you know, if you, if you have a look at those, you know, many hundreds of filings, you'd find it's a broad mix. You know, it's, it's individuals, it's corporates, it's uh, research institutions and universities. You know, so it's a, it was a really broad mix across a broad spectrum. And um, as I say, reflecting that pedigree of the firm, which was which was very much 
built around acting for you know Australian-based companies. I know. Uh, I know. When I've I worked for a few different firms, not for Griffith Hacker, as it turns out, but I was only there for short periods of time. Uh, Eighteen months here, two years there. Uh, I wasn't getting sacked. I was moving on for good reasons. Uh, but I never saw the journey from initial drafting to successful product for any of my clients. You probably have some stories of SMEs who you've seen grow from babies into successes. Have you got any uh, examples or some stories of, of those successes you've seen that you're happy to share? Sure. So one of my early clients, and this this was a sweet spot client for me, it was a company by the name of, they started off as Intech Proprietary Limited, and they were uh, really a one-man band. It was built around the technology of, of uh, this very, very uh, intelligent chemical engineer. And essentially what he was able to do was take very difficult to, to treat mineral ores and recover uh, valuable metals, particularly precious metals uh, such as gold, silver, they call them the platinum group metals. He was able to extract out of these highly refractory, very difficult to process ores, which came from some of the most exotic locations in the world uh, using his process um, and successfully you know, recover these metals. It sounds a lot like alchemy. It does in a way. It was, it was, it was a mixed halide solution. So this is particularly chlorine and bromine, but in solution. And he discovered that they formed these complexes with certain metals in the solution. And then they were highly aggressive at attacking these very difficult to to extract uh, ore bodies or minerals. He started off as a as a proprietary limited company, and we we went on the journey as they became uh, heavily invested in, and then ultimately listed on the stock exchange. And part of the capital raise was used to construct a commercial pilot plant in. St. Peter's, which is an inner city suburb of Sydney. And you would think, what the hell is a minerals processing plant doing in the middle of Sydney? How are you going to get the trucks in there with all the ore? Well, this is the thing. So the plant itself was actually not that far from the airport. And for some of these minerals, it actually made sense to fly them in. So, so it was it was not a I mean ultimately you would build this closer to the mine site. This was a you know really to demonstrate that the technology actually worked and was environmentally safe. And so they were getting you know plane loads of ore delivered from Kazakhstan and places like this. And it would be trucked to this plant. And I was there at the uh the you know inaugural opening where they had all the ministers and all the investors and all the important people and and essentially the plant had been up and running. And there, coming out at the end of the end of the line, so they had a they had a small furnace where the gold that they recovered was sort of you know diverted to. It was then melted, and then they were pouring these small ingots of gold. So you got dirt coming in one end and gold coming out the other. And it was just phenomenal, you know. And to know that you played a part in that evolution was just. Wonderful. You know, and that company did go on to some success for some time, but but ultimately world metal prices collapsed. You know, the people just weren't even interested in touching these difficult laws. So the processing cost got too high for the value of the exactly. uh, the metal at the end. Exactly. All of all of these projects dried up and you know, so they they eventually 
you know, succumbed. But look, it was that was just a great journey. Another just quick little journey. Just this was yeah, go ahead. This, this was with a, a startup company. Uh, the company's named Empress Sports, and the founding director he invented a, a game called Oztag. Now I don't know if you've ever seen Oztag. It's is is it where you have a, a a little rag on your hip that's a little bit like touch footy? Is it very much so? So what's patentable about that? You can't patent games exactly. So not only did we patent the apparatus, but we we patented the, the method and the system. So effectively, we we patented the game. That's that's almost impossible. I'm a business methods kind of guy, <laughs> software guy, uh, and I have trouble with uh, even with the computer involved. So how did you do that? Yeah, so essentially we tied it to the apparatus, but we tied it in a way that actually made it quite difficult to avoid the patent. And he, and I'm not saying anything that isn't on the public record, he had, you know, meteoric growth in the early days. And I remember when he, uh, you know, when he came to us, he had a few hundred players that were just trialing this system. Fortunately, he had filed a provisional patent application. And then we helped him from there on in. And um, he had uh, by the time we were sort of starting to get serious he had about 15,000 players around Australia and at this point you know the Australian Touch Football Association got very concerned because they were losing players to him they had around 250,000 players now within a few years the vast majority of those players had migrated to Oztag so their their concern was justified and and they could not believe that he he uh, had this pattern and and they 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 had an, an initial challenge at it which was unsuccessful he then as this game continued to grow he then um, promoted the game to uh, the NRL and then to the AFL and neither of them would believe or could accept that he could have patented this game <laughs> and in fact the AFL seriously challenged it we ended up uh winning firstly in the patent office then we won it one in the full in the federal court uh they appealed the decision and then it got appealed to the full federal court and we won there so we won three times we changed the law uh as well so we changed the law around uh inventive step and in Australia, and the, and the law had to be rewritten as a result of that decision. The, the, the Patent Office or IP Australia didn't like it. But anyway, uh, it was just an incredible uh, success story built around his patent. And he was paranoid about what would happen, you know, once his patent ran out, because it did run out eventually after 20 years. But as part of the sort of the IP support we provided to him, we'd built up, you know, this very large suite of brands and merchandising. And um, and then he had just through by by use of sort of his monopoly, been able to sort of he secured all the valuable fields and locations, and he had lots of licensees all around Australia, and uh, a really good you know pr- pr- licensing program. And he'd also taken it into schools. He had an educational uh, aspect to it, and and there was a lot of interest from you know parents because it was a non-contact way of playing you know rugby league, and so it was really really successful. Uh, in, in a whole raft of areas. And I kept saying to him, look, don't worry when the patent expires, you know, you, you, you've got the market share. It's going to take a long time for your competitors to catch up. And and that is the case. He really hasn't had uh, serious competitors. There's been a few, funnily enough, some of his licensees have tried to break away, but they've realised that it's difficult. He's He's got the infrastructure and he's got you know, all the sort of connections in place. And so, so you know, the patent got got into that position and and he's continued to really 
it's I won't say it's a complete monopoly, but he's continued to enjoy you know healthy market share as a result of that. So again, a great little story going on the journey with the you know the one man band to start up with, and then ended up becoming a real success story. That's that's, that's a great story for for many reasons. Uh, if he'd come to me and said, "Look, my my trademark is Oztag," I'd say, "Well, that's kind of pretty descriptive." And uh, uh, you're trying to pattern a game. I'm, I'm not sure I would have gotten past the first uh, meeting. So I'm glad he, he met you instead of me. <laughs> yes, yes. Now we've got, uh, you you would be surprised what I have patented, Justin, over the years. <laughs> <laughs> a three-hole golf course. Oh, really? Yes. You went that guy, was it uh, when the innovation patent first came out in Australia, it was like the old petty patent, someone someone patented the wheel because yeah, no, it wasn't examined. It was it was an attorney in my firm, actually, that was behind that. He also he also filed, filed a patent application for a square pizza <laughs> and, he, and he thought he'd have some backup, so he made sure that the vegetables that were arranged on the square pizza were also cut into square shapes so you can get these geometric patterns. So uh, just to highlight the absurdity of the uh, innovation pattern as it then was. <laughs> and just shows uh, the culture at uh, Griffith Hack, a bit of fun can go in, in the spare time. Exactly, exactly. Uh, speak, speaking of uh, Griffith Hack, obviously uh, starting as, as you were in your youth, uh, it was a privately owned firm, all the partners getting together, and then uh, I think it was... Mr. Murgatroyd over in uh, Scotland first listed on the stock exchange, and then uh, I think uh, you guys might have been the second off, or was it the IPH? I think IPH might have been first off the block, but then Zenith came onto the market with Griffith Hack and Shelston and Watermark, uh, and and today is now gone and now part of the IPH group with a bit of dosy doing. Um, really interesting to hear. Uh, people have been watching from the outside what's been going, uh, what's been happening. But from your perspective, from the inside, how is that journey to listing and then? Swapping to another listed entity, how's, how's that been for you? Yeah, it's, again, it's an interesting question, Justin. So as you say, IPH was the first firm. That was Spruceson and Ferguson. And then they acquired uh, a few uh, of the medium-sized practices around Australia and, and then also expanded their Asian operations. Uh, Zenith was, the so to speak, the second kid off the block in Australia. That was Shelston's who started that. And they uh, acquired... Uh, Griffith Hack and and Watermark as part of that uh, you know part of that process. I would say that had I known you know what I eventually knew, I possibly wouldn't have done it. But look, we we had reached you know despite me saying that we we had a great culture and we still did have a great culture, we had reached a bit of an impasse in terms of our size. So we were we were at that awkward size for a firm where we'd gone beyond being. Uh, you know, a firm that could be relatively easy, easily managed by a small group um, of partners uh, and that there would be the trust there to sort of leave them to the management. And, and it was a question of, you know, do we go big? Do we corporatise? Do we um, restructure? You know, do we split up the business? There were some partners that, that you know, wanted to keep things small and manageable and more boutique. There were others that, you know, wanted to go big. You know, we had options to do some international deals, you know, with some very large players uh, and there were partners who were opposed to that. So, you know, we, we got to that really awkward point um, in a partnership, you know, and this offer then came along from, from Zenith. And in a way it solved a lot of our problems uh, it, it addressed a lot of our issues and 
And as they say, you know, we will give you a corporate structure and we'll give you professional managers. And, you know, you as, you know, professionals can go back to doing the thing that you love, you know, working with clients and working with your team and mentoring and training and all that kind of thing, which is, which is, you know, to, to some, which is definitely true. That has definitely happened. But I think a number of partners also like the whole corporate aspect and the management aspect. And I think some of them felt in the new world disenfranchised and 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 moved on. So they had to go back from uh, from managing people to actually drafting patterns again, and they'd forgotten how to do it, no doubt. <laughs> exactly. Uh, those of us who kept our hand in, uh, you know, we we made that transition much more easily. Mm. And for me, it solved a lot of angst in terms of uh, those sort of partnership disagreements. So it was good from that perspective. I think that the 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 single biggest issue though that we hadn't quite identified was when Zenith acquired Griffith Hack, we were probably twice as big as Zenith. As Zenith. Yeah, that was a that was like a I don't know a fish swallowing a whale. I, I couldn't quite understand how that worked. Yes, and so that meant that Zenith's performance was very much tied to Griffith Hack's performance and it just so happened that the the year that they acquired us there was a a bit of a global downturn in patent filings and just a bit of a bit of an economic slowdown in Australia and so we had unfortunately a bad year you know and that um smashed just had such an impact on Zenith and on the share price and put brought a whole world of pain onto us uh as you know, formerly we'd been, you know, principals or partners in a business and you'd have your good years and you'd have your bad years, you know. Now we're in a listed environment where the eyes of the stock market and analysts and investors are on us. You have a bad year and there's no forgiveness. And so there was, there was, there was just pain and blood on the carpet and, you know, the CEO coming in and lecturing us and, and haranguing us and, saying, you know, we can't go there and all this kind of stuff. And um, so that was, I wish I'd known that a lot more clearly. I wish I'd, you know, mentally prepared myself for that. Uh, and then the opportunity came along with, we, we were, funnily enough, we were looking at doing a deal with the third listed player. So this is... Quantum, Davies Collins gave, yep. Uh, and we'd, we'd, we'd reached a heads in an agreement, but then... IPH stepped in and acquired a sort of a holding share in us in Zenith and um, ultimately acquired us to, you could say, to prevent that uh, merger from going ahead. But I think they also realised that they wanted to be at a a strategically strong position in Australia. And so, you know, it was, you might say, it's a good business strategy for them. Now, the good thing about that was that suddenly um, Griffith Hack was no longer a big fish in a, in a small pond. It was now a smaller fish in a much bigger pond. So a lot of that pressure and angst came off as a result of that acquisition. And um, a lot of the focus came off. I won't say it entirely came off because I think that our uh, our managing director, had a bit of an unhappy relationship with um, IPH management. And then that brought 
its own pressures and stresses. Uh, and it wasn't until he ultimately left and, and we have our current managing director uh, that that all changed. And it's been much smoother sailing ever since, much, much smoother sailing, much better, much, a much from that management's perspective or management focus on us as principals and on us as a firm, it's just been so much easier. Mm. From the outside, oh, it's great to hear that that's where you've ended up. Obviously, those extra pressures when I know, world events make the number of patent filings go down by 2%, it affects your margin by 20%, and then uh, the stock market goes down by 40%. I don't, I don't know what these numbers are, but uh, it's nice that... It was like that. It was very much like that. You know, you, you had these small changes and missing of a target by a small amount, but, you know, you missed your budget, and the and stock market just goes psychotic, you know. I had a, had a similar sort of experience uh, when I sold Anovia. It was to a listed uh, UK entity, RWS, big translation company. Uh, and, of course, uh, right, we achieved our targets. We got our earnout, and that was fine. But then I was continuing to work on there for another five years. Uh, and I went went there for a visit to the UK. And the, the chairman, who I think he was I think he was making a joke, but because we had missed our targets by a little bit, uh, he said to me when we met in the cafe, Justin, you've just cost me a hundred million pounds. I think he was making a joke, but that, that didn't didn't start the meeting well. No, exactly, exactly. And you could just tell him, look, that's just on paper losses, you know. <laughs> exactly. It's not realised losses. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> now uh, we're, we're bouncing around a little bit, but I want to talk about uh, Bill Trader for a little while. So pre all of this uh, listing uh, effort, uh, I went to one of the senior guys at um, uh, Griffith Hack, the CFO at the time, and said, uh, how about it? What do you reckon of uh, of using or investing in Bill Trader? And his response was, well, no, we're not interested. Uh, but he took a meeting with me and then eventually at the end of uh, him actually becoming a champion, 19 individual partners, not the entity itself, uh, did invest a million dollars in Bill Trader, which I'm eternally grateful. Thank you. You're one of the investors. So how did it go from, look, we're not interested, we no foreign exchange to here's a million dollars, Justin. How did that happen for you? Yeah, really, again, really good question. So, you know, our CFO at the time was the biggest fee earner in Griffith Hack. He made all his money from foreign exchange. So through, through hedging and, you know, really shifting currencies around and playing that foreign currency market extremely well. I didn't actually know that. You've given me a bit of information. This is a bit of a good question. <laughs> exactly. So... He, as his attitude was, if it's something to do with foreign exchange, I'm all over it. You know, you can't teach me anything. In fact, the, you know, the bank at the time used to take, the, the foreign exchange guys used to take him out for lunch and pick his own. <laughs> you know? So, um, but, you know, you persevered, which is to your credit. And um, eventually uh, he, he became persuaded that there, this was a good product and a good service and, and then he arranged with our CEO at the time to have you present to all the principals. Now, the structure was that it was kind of difficult for Griffith Hack to invest. Essentially, it had to come down to individual partners investing. And all but one of the equity partners or equity principals decided to invest in Bill Trader. For the one that didn't invest, um, you, we had the option of some of us, if we wanted to put in extra, could put in extra. I was one of those uh, who put in extra. So we kind of took up his place so that notionally everyone in Griffith Hack had, had invested. And um, why did we do it? Well, firstly, we all recognised 
the problem, that immediate problem that Bill Trader was solving. Um, but I think it was partly an investment in you. And, you know, I mentioned earlier about the culture where at least at the partnership level, there, were, there was always this conservative group who didn't want things to go any bigger or to go any faster. But, but they were all full-on enthusiastic about investing in Bill Trader. And <laughs> even the Conservatives. Even the Conservatives. In fact, they were the most vocal and the most enthusiastic, which initially made me nervous <laughs> because it, I thought, you know, hang on, maybe I'm overlooking something here. You know? <laughs> but a, a number of us, uh, we spoke about it separately to them and we thought, no, this is a good product. But more importantly, I think we were investing in you and your track record you know, and particularly with Novia. And we had been doubting Thomas's around, you know, it was PC, started off as PCT Filer and then became Novia. But, you know, to your credit, your sort of perseverance and your tenacity, um, you know, you saw that through to a really successful uh, organisation and ultimately a successful exit. And um, for us, it was uh, as much as anything investing in you, but we also liked the product and we liked the potential as to where it could go, we did use it, and 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 we we saw the the benefits realised. You know, the costs, considerable cost savings from the, those bank charges, and and you know, inflated uh, foreign exchange calculations around invoicing, and we like that be- beautiful simplicity of the swap. You know, just net out and then just work out what the difference is. We like the you know the fact that you can get payment up early, payment up front early. Um, so it took a lot of risk out. And I think part of, you know, I still chat with a couple of my fellow principals who are early investors around Bill Trader. And, and we say that, you know, ultimately where we see this could be, it becomes a platform, becomes an accounts management platform. And essentially it becomes very, very automated and very easy to to, to facilitate. And I, and I know that you're kind of heading that way anyway. So I, you know, I, it's been a, it's been a good journey going on the Bill Trader journey as well. You probably would say it hasn't been as easy as maybe as you as you would have thought. Uh, it doesn't didn't help that COVID came in the middle of it all and kind of killed all sort of international marketing and business development as it did for all of us. But uh, you know that that seems to be moving again and the opportunities are there again and and you know, we're we're kind of gratified to see uh, more and more significant firms coming on board. Well, it's a, uh, really appreciate the feedback. It's good good to know. And I guess from, from an entrepreneur's point of view, persistence uh, can pay. Uh, if the first you get a no, uh, keep, keep, keep talking. Yeah. And, you know, I've invested in a number of startups myself uh, over the years, all told more than 20. Uh, most have failed, I would say. <laughs> you're, you're, you're one of my success stories thus far. <laughs> thus far, thus far. But, you know, I learned fairly early on after a few bitter experiences, that if you don't trust and if you don't have a belief in the people that you're investing in, uh, and if you just think, you know, it's kind of those niggling doubts that are there, if you just think that they're going to go away, they don't. They get magnified. <laughs> they get magnified. But, you know, as, as much as anything, it's about the people. I think that's absolutely right. And talking to any investors, uh, any small business, uh, the key people are, are it. Uh, it's, if you think there's no substance to them or they're going to give up after the first uh, first hurdle, yeah. uh, walk away with your money in your pocket. Yeah. And I think that impressed most of us more than anything. Uh, I appreciate that. I, I, I know the uh, 
Obviously, it's the second time around with the Nova. It is, it is easier. Well, I, I'm making fewer mistakes uh, this time around, <laughs> but it is a hard journey. I know our, our biggest investor, early investor in uh, Inovia, they, they looked at a thousand firms and they invested in 13 and we were the most successful. So that was, I didn't know that until after we'd uh, sold the company, but uh, anyway, fingers crossed again, but uh, Bill Trade is going well, we're growing fast. We're only at about 0.1% of the 18 billion US dollar market. So we've got some, got, got some, got some way to go and hopefully to give you a good return uh, very soon, Rob. Excellent, excellent. Might, might help with my retirement. <laughs> Looking back uh, at, uh, I know someone starting in the profession today, it's, it's obviously changed a lot since you began. What advice would you give to a young person ent- entering the profession about their, their career ahead as a patent attorney? Yeah, so one of the things I think is uh, helpful is to have at least have had some industry experience, some work experience before you join the patent attorney profession. I had worked in various roles for three years before I started with Griffin Hack. And that definitely gave me an insight into how clients see the world. And remember when I joined, IP wasn't focal at all. Uh, So it was very much a a backroom function. Uh, You know, one of the projects I worked on, uh, the company ended up patenting that technology. So I had to sign uh, my inventorship rights across (laughs) and sign various forms. So it already had a little little mini insight uh, into that. But... um, and that's certainly what we look for when we're when we're recruiting people. We look we look we look to recruit people who have had uh, industry experience. The reason being that because we're working a lot with domestic clients, we want our attorneys to understand it from their perspective. But what I would say is the biggest change is that um, for a lot of our clients now, IP is front and centre. You know, for some of the, the startups, it's their key asset. It's their most valuable asset. And um, so they're coming into an environment where uh, they they play, do play more of a central role uh, in the businesses that you know that we interact with, and we've certainly moved up the food chain as a result of that. You know, so for some of our larger clients, in the past we would have dealt dealt with uh, the R and D manager at best, or a researcher in the organisation. And now we're often dealing with the marketing manager or the uh, general manager of the division or, you know, in some cases, the managing director, depending on the, the organisation. Maybe not in the day-to-day stuff, but certainly for the key strategic meetings and the key planning meetings uh, around the IP. So you need to have a little bit of gumption and wherewithal. And um, one of the things we like to do is get our young people in early into those meetings and even get them talking and, you know, get them to speak on various points. <laughs> They'd be a bit nervous, I would think. Exactly. So they get so they get used to interacting with C-suite type people or at least, you know, management type people. It helps if they've had an industry experience because they've, they've probably already been used to that. These people have potentially been their bosses in, in those environments. So they kind of know that lingo a bit already. But um, that's the biggest shift, I would say, is that IP is much more front and centre for organisations. Especially for clear, clean technology lawyers these days. Absolutely. You know, so, you know, in a way, that's what Australia has to compete with. It, it doesn't have the market size and it doesn't have the, the, the capital base to draw from. But, 
you know, you, you look at a country like Israel, what has it successfully done? It successfully exported its intellectual property, you know, and um, so it's made up for its small, small size and small population with very strategic approach and, 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 and particularly built around intellectual property. Australia can do the same and certainly we are seeing more of that and, and better understanding of, of how um, a small company can play on the world stage and you know, have meetings with serious uh, companies and serious investors around the world as a result of that. That's uh, just because we're far away and a, a small country doesn't shouldn't hold us back. I, I support that hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Now, one thing, uh, now one thing you wanted to touch on uh, was uh, for a, uh, an SME starting the patent process in the first place. Uh, whether there's anything they can do, the patent process is is difficult. It's long. It's expensive. Anything advice you have for an SME about to start the patent process that will ease ease the process for them? Yeah. So one of the the biggest pain points, uh, and this is for both large and small entities alike and research institutions as well, is that you we spend all this time um, prosecuting, we call it prosecuting, but having these patents examined and and uh, we try, try and get them registered around the world. Enormous costs, enormous time delays, and then suddenly some prior art comes up that should have come up earlier on, on in the piece, but really takes the wind out of the sails or ends up, the patent ends up becoming so narrow that uh, almost commercially worthless. And we think that you could bring, so to speak, it's not bringing the pain forward, but it's, it's bringing the analysis forward. Uh, so we, we do this with, particularly with research institutions, we do it with uh, small medium enterprises that are up for it, but we we invest a good amount of time uh, early on uh, understanding the patent landscape, but really also understanding what kind of patent they may be able to achieve, and or what further research might need to be done to strengthen the position that they. So we could we could and analyze that landscape and say, this is the this is the sort of position that we think you can get, but we think it could also be improved or enhanced if you were to invest a bit of R and D time into into the um, that, that that opportunity. Mm, the get the gap in the market that needs to be filled. Exactly. So you know, there's lots of opportunities around hydrogen and. It's it's fairly early days, but there's still a lot of patent literature out there. I mean, hydrogen didn't 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 get invented a few months ago, and uh, uh, there's 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 still an enormous amount of patenting activity that's taken place, particularly in the last twenty years. But there are also still gaps. Now, some of the some of it is uh, where we find close prior art as part of it, what we call a pre-study. We then have a look at you know, what, what are the, the differences or what could be the differences? Or, or for example, could you enhance that solution in some way? So, so instead of waiting for all that to happen five or six years or eight years down the track when hundreds of thousands of dollars have been invested in this international patenting program, we bring all that forward. And the idea being that what we're taking forward then 
is something that's a lot more robust and a lot more likely to, to, to get to go through. And we've got some early success stories from some of those what we call pre-studies where because of the effort that we put in early on, the patterns have actually sailed through quite nicely. Uh, and that's been that's been quite good. So um, a lot happier clients as a result of that. I think that's a, it's, a, it's very good advice. It's a, it's a difficult balance. I know early in my career when I was actually crafting patterns for a living, we didn't really do that. But when you talk to an American attorney, they were spending 10, 15,000 US dollars to do these searches up front. Uh, I agree with you now that that's exactly the best investment for you. But as a as a startup with only two five thousand dollars to spend, it's hard hard to do that. But I think it is the right advice. It is, and the, I think the difference is, you know, there'll be plenty of attorneys say, "Oh, yeah, we do searching." What what we do is we um, we're analysing that searching. We're we're doing it with the with the researchers. So in these these studies that take the form of workshops, and we've got innovation people in the room as well, be that sort of consultants or, or whatever. But um, And we're really looking at uh, not just, uh, you know, do you have freedom to operate or do you have something patentable, but what do we actually need to make this a, a strong patent? What do we need to do? And there may be a few iterations before we get there. And then eventually what we end up with is a, is a product is a product that comes out of that which is actually much more robust and much more likely to su- succeed at least from the IP side but potentially also from the commercial side and that's what the, the company wants what am I going to get in the end uh, how strong is it going to be at least having that or well, it's not certainty but a much better idea anyway very good advice there it's been a great talking with you Rob uh, we'll see you around Sydney sometime soon That'd be great, Justin. And and look, I'm I've got my fingers crossed for Bill Trader that those couple of years, you know, maybe if Bill Trader keep, keeps kicking those goals, it, they'll come sooner rather than later. Maybe it'll be a yacht rather than sitting under a tree. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> Terrific. Thanks. Thanks, Rob. All the best. Well, that's it for our first episode of Talking IP. And thanks to my guest, Rob Wolf. Thank you for joining us for our very first episode. And please reach out to connect with me on LinkedIn, where we'll share updates on the release of each episode. Talking IP is brought to you by BillTrader, the fintech solution that's purpose-built for IP firms. To learn more, visit BillTrader.com.